I hope you enjoyed our last episode on Henry Hudson. The episode seemed to have caused more questions to be asked than to be answered at certain points. One big question being, was Henry Hudson the first European to go up the river that now bears his name? Based on the criteria we set forth in the last episode, depending on what the Native Americans came out with, well, if they came out with furs, they probably have seen Europeans before and traded with them before. If they came out with tobacco, they were treating these Europeans like any other Native American who might wander into their territory on friendly terms. So Henry Hudson going up the Hudson River seems to have reached a point where the natives are coming out with tobacco and they've never seen a European before because they're bringing something that other natives would want and not Europeans. So I know that's convoluted, but the, the entire thing is convoluted and there's there's really no definitive answer. We know Giovanni de Verrazzano, who sailed for the French, not the Spanish, as I said in the last episode, at least made it to the mouth of New York Harbor, close to the Hudson. Maybe he went up the Hudson a little bit. He doesn't really say too much about it. We know other explorers, among the English and the Spanish especially, may have sighted New York Harbor. Estavo Gomez, perhaps, made it up the Hudson River. We don't know exactly. And we're going to come back to this issue over and over again because there's just so many mysteries still out there to be solved. But now we're going to move on to the fur trade. So you might have heard, well, uh, you know, Canada started as New France and New York, New Jersey started as New Netherlands. And the only reason they existed was to get fur. And you might be thinking to yourself, fur? This, this all started because of fur? That doesn't make any sense. Well, remember, this is an age before central heating. This is an age where if you wanted heat, you had to light something on fire. And even in travel, there is no heated coach cars. There's no in the inside of your motor vehicle that has you know heat coming off the engine that's filtering through. Nothing like that. Traveling is cold. Your houses are cold. Everything is miserable and cold. So warm clothing is essential. And in the 16th century, one thing that really takes off and becomes a status of wealth is having a really nice beaver fur hat. Now you might say to yourself, I've seen a lot of old pictures and it just looks like they're wearing felt hats. Fancy, old-timey felt hats like you'd get at a costume store. Well, felt was actually invented to kind of replace beaver fur hats. So the process of making one of these hats is fairly involved. But basically, the outer fur that you would see on a beaver, that's gotta go. And then there's this, these inner, really fine furs underneath. So picture like on a dog or a cat or even a person. You have these outer hairs that are kind of thick. And then inside you have this layer of like thinner, really light, feathery hair. And beavers have an insane amount of that. They have, I've seen estimates anywhere from 10,000 to 25,000 hairs per cubic centimeter. Just packed in there. And that's the hair that these hatters, people who make hats, are going to use to make hats. Using just these fine hairs shaved off the hide, they would make this kind of concoction that would be formable. It would be felt-like. And in order to do this, they would often have to use mercury, which is a liquid metal and would slowly drive you crazy if you were exposed to it through mercury poisoning. And this is where we get the phrase, mad as a hatter, or the mad hatter. Because these people, they were very fine craftsmen, but a couple decades of making hats with mercury, your brain is just eaten away by the stuff. And as you can imagine, these hats would be very expensive, not just because of the supply, which we're going to get into, but a hatter in the 16th century could only make two or three hats a day. So this is a, a craftsman, and you're getting about half a day's worth of his labor. And so as you can imagine, the labor alone made these hats pretty expensive. Europeans who were responsible for obtaining these beaver skins 
actually hunted the beavers square out of the Netherlands, square out of Central Europe, square out of Western Europe, all the way to the far reaches of Russia. And the beaver became quite an endangered animal. A beaver's a rodent, but when you think about rabbits and mice and rats procreating very quickly, beavers just don't tend to do that quite as fast. And so the demand was far more than the supply, and beavers were hunted to the extreme ends of basically Eurasia. Sometimes a beaver fur would be referred to as soft gold, because high demand and dwindling supply, these beaver skins started to be worth quite a bit of money. So where are the Europeans going to turn to find more beaver? For the Dutch, if you think about the Dutch East India Company, which we talked about in a previous episode, they control all these tropical places, places where beavers are nowhere to be seen, and there are no animals with the type of dense fur needed to make the hats that would suffice to keep you warm in the Netherlands or places they traded with, including a lot of the Nordic countries. Similar case with the Spanish Empire and the Portuguese Empire, the places where they took over just didn't have the types of animals to make these nice hats. The French Empire, however had been exploring places in modern-day Canada. And basically anywhere in Canada where you would hear French today, as the majority language, the French were exploring. The St. Lawrence Seaway, um, what will be modern-day Montreal, Quebec City. And the French had a great head start because they were, in the middle of the 16th century, already trading furs with the Algonquin people up in that area. And that kind of bleeds over into our Haudenosaunee episode, I believe our third one, where all of a sudden Samuel D. Champlain shows up at the doorstep of the Iroquois up near Lake George with Algonquin allies. Long before we called it Canada, or more specifically Quebec, it was called New France. And I think next season of this podcast, we might dedicate a big chunk of it to New France. But New France at this time is going to be the fur trading hub of North America. North of the Iroquois, surrounded by Algonquin people, coming out of the St. Lawrence Seaway, with a direct line to the Great Lakes and the inside of the continent, furs are going to flow from lots of places in northern North America out to the French, and the French are going to take it back to Europe. The French are going to design huge networks with their Native American allies to obtain these furs. And eventually, New France, if you look at certain maps from the 18th century, New France is going to go from Quebec and northern Canada all the way down to Louisiana. It's going to be massive. Very impressive feat. This network proved to be perfect for fur trading. New France didn't have to dominate Native American groups. They worked together. They had loose alliances. And the French could have little trading posts along the coast. And they would have access to the far interior of the continent. And they would have the best way to access furs from almost anywhere in North America that they could be found. If you think about the other parts of the eastern coastline of what is now North America, or what we call now North America, there's lots of mountains. If you go past New York, if you go south of New York, you run into the great Appalachian Mountains that run all the way down to Georgia. So there's going to be a block from the interior of the continent. You go north of New York, there's a slight opening between the Catskills and the Adirondacks, and then past the Adirondacks, you have that great opening of the St. Lawrence, and you can get right in there, and with a little trouble, you can get to the uh, Great Lakes. So the Native Americans are going to be getting for these furs, which they have an abundance of, at least in the beginning. And it's it's almost like a waste product, because if you think how much they hunt, they have furs. This is why Native Americans aren't trading furs with each other. Everyone has them. It's not something that's in high demand. But the Europeans want this, what they would consider almost trash, because they have so much of it. And in return, the Native Americans are getting precious 
metal objects, which is something they don't have access to. So a lot of people today, you, you hear a narrative of, oh, the uh, the poor, ignorant Native Americans who were innocent and, and didn't know any better, they traded away thousands and thousands of dollars worth of furs for a small, broken metal axe. You hear that often. But those are people who are thinking about this trading from a European point of view, instead of taking the point of view of the Native American. So yeah, from the European point of view, you're going, oh yeah, it's a bunch of broken metal pieces. What can that possibly be worth? Well, value is not determined by who is supplying the objects. It's determined by who's willing to buy it or who's willing to trade for it. To the Native Americans who don't have access to metal tools at all or metal objects, these things are invaluable. Imagine hunting with a stone spear and then refinishing an axe into little tiny arrowheads and using metal spears for the first time. Metal arrows. Big difference in terms of how sharp they can be, how tough they are, and how much you can reuse those things. It really is a huge, world-shaking difference. So when you hear about these transactions, if you're thinking in your head, oh, those poor Native Americans, they were bamboozled. No. First of all, you're painting Native Americans as being ignorant and stupid. And second of all, you're not considering what they're getting out of it, considering what they have access to. They're trading furs, which they have too many of, for something they have no access to whatsoever. And the Europeans are doing the exact same thing. This is a mutually beneficial trade network. So how do the Dutch fit into this story of New France? We haven't really gotten to the founding of New Netherland yet. But New France plays into it because they're going to be involved in the same exact industry in a very close proximity to one another. Well, the Dutch had been privateering, which is basically I'm a pirate, but I work for an enemy nation. I'm not just my own outfit. They've been privateering in New France for some time. And they've been illegally trading furs in New France for a while. This is something you don't hear about very often, but the Dutch were already in the New World. They were just inside of New France doing illegal activities. And the Dutch were doing this from around the year 1600 on. So before Hudson even left on his ship, the Dutch were already not too far away from what would one day be New Netherland. The French government did not like this, of course, and at one point they shut down all trading activity by the Dutch in the St. Lawrence. And that gives a lot of Dutch traders reason to look for new markets and new places to go. And like I said before, the dirty little secret of American history is that we don't know exactly when Europeans first made sustained contact with Native Americans. It was a trade secret. After the Norse, of course, were basically eliminated from North America and Greenland, we know that basically as far back as the 15th century, there were Basque fishermen and Portuguese fishermen off the coast of you know what is now Canada who were coming ashore, salting cod, and trading with the Native Americans. And of course, we know they were trading fur. It was the beginning of this trade. Evidence of this we brought up in other episodes, but uh, famous sailors like Cabot, or Cabot, as, as we in the English world would say, Cabot, decades before Hudson, saw Native Americans with furs on sticks like, hey, come over here, we know you want these. So there's a, a secret history going on of contact, of which we're just starting to really piece together. But back in school, when you saw those maps and it showed all the missions that Columbus took and then Henry Hudson and then all that. And, and then you thought, oh, those are the first missions to those areas. Probably not. It's just it's just an unknown. Private traders making their private money. They were probably there first everywhere. And they didn't tell anyone because they wanted to go back and make some more profit. I know I'm rambling, but in addition to Cabot, we have uh, Jacques Cartier. He was I'm, I'm sure I butchered that name. I always do. He saw the same thing happening, Native Americans with furs on sticks, in 1534. 
That's really early on, considering Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. By 1534, up the coast, Native Americans were swinging furs at him. So yeah, there were fishermen there very early on, and the contact was way before what you were told in school. You were lied to, so I'm fixing it now. So let's move to the Hudson River Valley specifically, because that's going to be the real center of New Netherland. Here too, it seems like there were Europeans there occasionally before Hudson came around. There are early rumors of French forts, especially where Fort Nassau is going to be built, but those seem to be unsubstantiated. There, there's been no confirmed French structures found before the time of Henry Hudson. But there are tales of early English companies or French companies finding their way down south of New France and setting up temporary structures for a time, or wintering over the season there until they can go back north again. And again, we don't have any concrete evidence of this yet. So if you're at home and you're looking for something to uh, research or you know, make your mark on history, there's a lot of unknowns here for you to explore. With Hudson's voyage being funded by the Dutch East India Company, you would think, well, now the Dutch East India Company would have claim to what's going to become New Netherland. Well, you're wrong. For one thing, the Dutch East India Company had a charter with the Dutch government, the state's general, to explore and trade and do as they will, as we've talked about in previous episodes. They could declare war and declare peace within the territory given to them. It's all in the East, though. They're the Dutch East India Company. This is part of the reason why Henry Hudson was supposed to go to the Northeast instead of the Northwest and why they weren't happy about it. Because the lands that Hudson explored and discovered were outside of the charter of the Dutch East India Company. Oops. Okay, so the Dutch East India Company, biggest company in the world maybe ever, adjusted for inflation, as we've talked about many times. And I'm sorry about being redundant about that. So why don't they just extend their charter, uh, grease a few palms, and get permission to control that area? Well, compared to the other places that the company was in charge of, what's going to become New Netherlands is just nothing. There's nothing much there. The fur trade, while lucrative to a small-time trader, to the Dutch East India Company is nothing compared to the spices that they're getting or the privateering that's being conducted in the, in the Spanish and the Portuguese ships during certain times that are just being completely looted of all their precious metals and slaves and all these other things. There's a lot more profit to be made elsewhere in warmer latitudes. Fur can make a lot of people a lot of money, but for a company that's several times bigger than Amazon is today, it's nothing. They don't even sneeze at it. To them, Henry Hudson's voyage was a complete loss on the books. But as soon as the information of Hudson's third voyage makes it back, and they hear about furs, lots of Native Americans with lots of furs up this strange river that seemed like it was a channel to the northwest and outside of North America, the Dutch were there quickly. So the first recorded missions for trading that occur on the Hudson are re recorded in 1610. So within a year of Hudson's voyage, everyone rushes to the area that can, and they start trading for furs like crazy. So the Dutch are going to love this setup, and the Native Americans on the Hudson are also going to love this setup. That's mutually beneficial, like I said, at this time. So especially the Mohegan, who are going to live around the Albany area, a little south of there, sometimes on the other side of the Hudson, the Mohegan have been trading their furs to the north with their Algonquin allies that eventually get to the French. But they have to go through a middleman in order to make those trades. So you're going to lose a little bit of your profit. It's going to take a little more time to do that. Now the Mohegan are going to get a front row seat to all these European traders. They don't have to walk very far at all, and they don't have to deal with a middleman giving them a cut. So this is perfect for the Native Americans around the Hudson River. 
And the Dutch are going to be the perfect Europeans for the Native Americans at this time. So often in history class, you learn about the English coming over. And then there's this huge uh, Puritan influx. And they seem to overwhelm all the Native Americans and they take the land, this, that, the other thing. All of which is true. But here in the New Netherland side of the story, the Dutch were not interested in moving to North America. So they didn't crowd out the Native Americans. Not at all, really. Throughout the entire history of New Netherland, there's very little conflict over land. As I said in our episode about the Dutch, the Dutch right now are beginning to go through their golden age. So whereas England is going to have all these problems, the enclosure movement and poverty and just these, these peasants out in the country just wandering into cities, the Dutch, they're doing fine. They have all the jobs in the world, all these new markets and shipbuilding and textile industries. People don't want to move to North America. They do want to trade for furs and go back home. And up in New France, the French are in a similar position. The Dutch and the French have a better reputation with Native Americans overall than the English are going to have. A big reason for me doing this podcast is to, to show you, the listener, all, this, all these little pieces of history that I'm not really allowed to teach in class because it's not in the New York State curriculum or it's just mentioned very briefly. One thing that develops in your brain if you take a high school U.S. history regions course is that, you know, the Europeans came over, they were really bad, and the Native Americans suffered because of it. Well, here we are in the 17th century, and things are a lot more complicated. There are very few Europeans. And like I just mentioned, when it comes to the French and the Dutch, the story is not so one-sided as it is with the English and the Spanish. So by 1610, the Dutch, they're on the Hudson. They're trading for furs. We don't even know the names of all the Dutch sailors and captains and ships that made their way in that first year or two. We know a couple of the more famous ones who became important later on for founding the legitimate colony. But early on, there's reports of certain traders we do know the names of chasing other traders out. Dutch traders as well as French traders. Cornelius May is one of the first names you're going to see when it comes to New Netherland history. He's going to be the first director a couple years from the time period we're covering right here. Cornelius May he fought with Frenchmen at the, at the mouths of these rivers, and he chased them out of the Hudson River Valley. So there, there must have been some French hanging around. So I know I'm contradicting what I said earlier, but it seemed they're admitting there were French people there. Of course, later on, the Dutch will say, oh, there were no French people here. It's been Dutch the whole time. And that was part of legitimizing their claim to the area. In addition to May, we see another trader, Hendrik Christensen. And he shows up around 1610 also. And very quickly on, there's all these competing companies where these sailors are working for an investor back in probably Amsterdam, most likely. And we have some of the bigger ones. The biggest one, of course, is the Van Tweenhuizen Company. And then the Brouwer Company. And then the Hans Clausen Company. And then the Witsen Company. There's just tons of them. And they just keep showing up and showing up because nobody has any exclusive license to the area. It's, it's claimed by the Netherlands, but it's wide open as far as who gets to go in there. When the trading season is done in 1610, 1611, they all come back again. And we see a new character on the scene, a guy named Adrian Block. And he's going to make the very famous Block map. That you see often, if you if you go online and you put in Blocks Map, New Netherland, you'll see it. It's beautiful, and it's one of the earliest maps that we have of the area. On his map, he names features for the first time ever, and some of those names are still there to this day. He also discovers the East River for Europeans, and realizes that Manhattan is an island, and that'll become important later on. By 1613, Adrian Block is on his at least third mission to New Netherland, working for the Van Tweenhuizen Company, and I know I'm saying that wrong. 
Also, by 1613, there's so many traders on the Hudson River that the prices of fur go through the roof because all the, all the merchants are trying to outdo one another to get the furs from the natives. So the natives are benefiting greatly because whereas they might have gotten, let's say, two hatchets for a beaver fur, you know, in 1610, now in 1613, they're getting four hatchets, five hatchets. The, the price is going through the roof, and the Native Americans are actually the ones benefiting the most at this time. 1613 is also the year where we're pretty pretty sure the Dutch started making semi-permanent or permanent structures for trading. So before this time, the boats would have to go up and down the river. Natives would come out if they happened to see the boat, and then they would make trades depending on what was there. What the Dutch realize is, we're going to make permanent trading posts, and then each individual company, they can build their post, they can put a couple guys there all season, and then the Native Americans, as they get the fur, will know exactly where to go. So I don't want them to go to my competitor who's going up and down in his boat. I'll build a permanent structure. The natives will know where it is. They'll come to me first any time of the year. So 1613, we start seeing permanent structures built by the Dutch. 1613, a big year again. Also the first time we see the English poke their heads into the area that we're going to call New Netherland. So Samuel Argyll, he's going to be an English sailor. He's going to be sent to basically what is now Delaware and up to New York to find people who are squatting on the rights of the English crown. At this time, Spain, France, the Netherlands, and England are all taking claim to the area that we would call, oh, pretty much all of the East Coast of the United States. All of them have overlapping claims, and no one's recognizing each other's claims. So this Englishman, he comes up, and he's going to look for squatters and kick them out. And he actually, according to his report, he finds a French outpost on the Delaware. So the French were down there trading furs, and he kicks them out of there. And then he runs into our guy, what's his name? Hendrik Christensen, like I mentioned earlier. And Hendrik Christensen, you know, he's he's a he's a trader. He's a little sneaky. So Hendrik Christensen, Christensen says, hey, uh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, King of England? Yes, yes, big fan of him. Yeah, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pledge allegiance to that guy, sure. Yeah, I'll be part of the uh, English Empire. Sounds good to me. I'm just going to keep doing my trading. Yep, all loyalty to England. Then, of course, as soon as the English guy leaves, he went about his business again. In 1613, a Dutch trader named Mazel, working for the Hans Klaus Company, he finds the Native Americans that are trading with Adrian Block and his other competitors. And he doesn't hurt the Native Americans, but he hacks their canoes to bits. He realizes, you traded with my competition. I'm just going to destroy you. So things are starting, 1613, things are starting to get a little crowded, a little competitive, and a little nasty on the Hudson River. By the end of 1613, the Van Tweenhuizen Company and the Hans Klaus Company are conspiring with one another to push all the other Dutch traders out. So they said, we're competitors, but we're the two biggest guys out here. How about the two of us team up and we push out everybody else? Does it work? Not so much. Well, by 1614... They thought they had it done, but trading up and down the river all season. Bunch of disasters happening. Ships sink. Ships catch on fire. And so these two companies, they have to make deals with each other in order to get this stuff back to the Netherlands safely. You get this much of a share. You get this much of a share. And then wouldn't you know it, two more big trading companies show up there. Everyone's Dutch. By the end of the season, there's four companies all conspiring with the same load of furs, trying to get them back to the Netherlands, and each company is trying to stab the other company in the back. It's a huge disaster. Adrian Block's ship that was lost, the Tiger, the uh, remains of it were actually found underneath the World Trade Center. So that's where that ended up, and it's surprising that anything survived from it because it caught on fire, so most of it was burnt up. So after this disastrous 1614 season of 
buying furs. All these companies end up back in the Netherlands trying to divide up the same share of furs. Everyone's suing each other. It's a huge mess. And so this is when everyone realizes, okay, we need we need a little more regulation here. We need the government to step in and straighten this out because this is not working. The government of the Netherlands, the States General, they put these guys together and they say, listen, you're going to be one company now. You're going to be called the New Netherland Company. You're going to have an exclusive monopoly over the fur trade everywhere in North America between 40 degrees and 45 degrees latitude, north latitude. With no limit on longitude, 40 to 45 degrees north latitude is everything from like Pennsylvania square up to Maine. And of course, this is going to overlap the French claim and the English claim. And they're all going to disagree on where the real boundaries are. But the early maps will show New Netherland running all the way to Cape Cod. This combined outfit, the New Netherland Company, was given a three-year term. So for three years, they get complete monopolization of New Netherland in terms of fur trade. This deal would start January 1st, 1615. So the race was on. Another mystery from this time that you might make your mark on, Fort Nassau. So you've all heard of Fort Orange, but before Fort Orange, there was Fort Nassau, which was built on Castle Island in the Hudson River right outside of Albany. That was the original trading post in what is now upstate New York for the Dutch. That structure was there for a couple years, and then all of the seasonal spring flooding, eventually they were like, oh, we just can't keep this up, we have to abandon this. But it appears that either the New Netherland Company built Fort Nassau, or right before it, the Van Tweenhausen Company probably built it. Anyway, the New Netherland Company took it over, and that was the first trading hub for the Dutch on the Hudson. Being on an island, it had some natural protection, but the natives knew where it, where it was. They had guns there, they had some cannon, I believe. It was set up, it was small, it was set up like a, a house, but it had some protection around it to show, you know, we, we know what we're doing, we can protect ourselves, don't think about attacking us. So it was half fort, half trading post. And you know what? That fort has never been found. We have never found the remains of that fort. There have been people who have speculated of where it, it is probably located if there's any remains left to be seen there. But nobody has put a shovel on the ground, so to speak. No one has done an excavation to find it. Nearby Fort Orange, the later trading fort, that was found very famously in the late 60s? No, early 70s by Paul Huey, who's a very renowned archaeologist in um, the upstate New York area, and I've, I've seen him speak a couple of times. But yes, Fort Nassau remains officially unfound. Something maybe you as the listener could organize and go and discover and make a name for yourself. Who knows? I live close enough. If you need an extra shovel, I'll come down. But after this three-year period, they lose their monopoly. And you know what the state's general doesn't renew it. And so New Netherland just kind of goes back into that chaotic period where anyone can just show up. Now, they were kind of sorry that they lost that monopoly because for that amount of time, they could fix the price that they were willing to pay for beaver furs. So let's say the price was equivalent to $10 today. Well, it's one company, it's their monopoly, and they actually have a monosopy, which is when you control the when you control most of who is buying something. So from the Native American point of view, they could only sell to that one company. They have a monosopy, and they could say, I'll give you $10 for your fur. And they could say, well, how about 12 And no, that's the company standard. There's nobody else here to sell it to. So and when that period expired, it all went back to the way it was before. Prices went up, there was a lot of competition, a lot of bad blood, and chaos reigned among the Dutch traders. There isn't a lot of information of what went on during these chaotic couple of years, probably because A, you don't want people to know where you've been trading, and B, you don't want people to know all the terrible things you've done. One thing I found is 1622, so again, we have, you know, four or five years of chaos here. Jacob Elkins, who's a guy we've seen before, maybe Elkins, 
I'm going to say Ilkins. Jacob Ilkins. He's kidnapping Native Americans, holding them for ransom in order to get wampum and fur and whatnot. So we're, we're seeing just downright criminals show up in the Hudson River Valley and hurting Native Americans and other Dutch traders just to get a little profit. Two years earlier than that, if we take a little trip to the east, we see the landing of the Mayflower and the founding of the Plymouth Colony by the Separatists, who are originally from England. This is going to be 1620. This is also a huge loss opportunity for the Dutch because the Separatists, who end up in Plymouth under the English crown, were living in the Netherlands for a long time. And at one point, they were actually seeking to make a colony in what would be New Netherlands under the Dutch flag. So in an alternative reality, the Pilgrims would have been New Netherland Pilgrims. They would have, that, that whole Mayflower and the whole story and the, the Great Landing and the religious freedoms, blah, blah, all that stuff would have happened in Manhattan, maybe, instead of in modern-day Massachusetts. And it would have been under the Dutch crown instead of the English crown. But unfortunately for the Dutch, this is going to begin, at the very end of our story, the, the long process of the English arrival to what they're going to call New England, and they're just going to overwhelm every other group with their numbers. So had the Dutch let them in earlier on, who knows what would have happened. Maybe all the English migration would have gone down south to the Virginia colony and the other southern colonies. There's no way of knowing. It's just fun to ponder these things. We can also ponder this. Some of the earliest settlers in New Netherland, which we'll learn about, came from Walloon and Huguenot groups. And those, some of those groups were actually petitioning around this time the English crown to settle in the English American colonies. So the first settlers in New Netherland at some point wanted to settle in the English colonies. And the first settlers in New England originally wanted to settle in the New Netherland colonies. Crazy stuff. And yeah, you need a map to keep track of all this stuff. That's why this, this is probably the episode where I'm going to do the most rambling, if I haven't done the most rambling already. Why did the Dutch government allow this monopoly to expire? And why do we have this couple years of chaos? What's going on behind the scenes? Well, we'll see the rich and powerful in the Netherlands were going to be forming a, a new company. A Western version of the Dutch East India Company. The Dutch West India Company. And it was supposed to mirror the success of the East one. And people were really excited about it. And we're going to see in our upcoming episode the founding of the Dutch West India Company and the formal settlement of New Netherland as it starts to grow and become a colony as we would recognize it and not just a series of trading posts. Well, thank you for listening to this episode. Like I said, it was my wildest, least organized episode possible because this is the Wild West of New Netherland right now. And we're still trying to fish out all the details and all the sides and the alliances and the back and forth. Crazy times. And the next episode, everything's going to become a little more concrete and understandable. I promise. So I'm Eric Giannis. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.